Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Yael David from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you did your PhD at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Then in 2011, you moved to do a postdoc in, at Princeton University in their Department of Chemistry. And in 2016, you became an assistant professor at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And you are still there today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, so um, as an undergrad, I was actually very interested in uh, neurobiology and biochemistry, but I think I was unable to articulate that what really is, um, you know, driving my passion is understanding molecular mechanisms that are driven by proteins. And the reason why, so that's sort of the biochemistry part. And the reason why I was drawn to neurobiology is because understanding how very sort of simple machineries such as proteins can drive major changes and systemic changes as in the, you know, in the, in the nervous system. And um, as I was diving deeper into understanding these specific receptors um, and how they can change cell fate by, um, by, you know, receiving signal from the outside, um, I became more and more fascinated with with higher and higher resolution understanding of these these uh, processes. So I think if you see throughout my career, I was going deeper and deeper in, um, into um, the biochemistry and then the chemistry of proteins. And now I sort of do both the zoom in and the zoom out. And I understand, I try to understand both sort of the chemistries and the biochemistries that are happening, but also sort of how cells are affected by, by these processes. Yeah. So coming to your science, um, that centers around the non-enzymatic covalent modifications on histones and the characterization of linker histone H1 variants. Um, I want to start in the year 2015 because I think this is where your journey in epigenetics really started. I mean, this year you were first author on a paper titled Chemical Tagging and Customizing of Cellular Chromatin States Using Ultrafast Trans-Splicing Intains. Um, could you please explain this method to engineer histones that uh, bear site-specific modifications uh, and what did you use it for? Sure. And I think it ties exactly to where my interest lies in how, um, you know, molecular machineries, proteins can drive changes in the cell. And epigenetic is sort of like a classical place to, to be in that regard, because these are proteins that even though they don't change the genetic material, they really change how cells use the genetic material. And so in epigenetic, a lot of the regulation is actually done post-translationally. So that means that processes that occur in the cell affect um, you know, chromatin-associated proteins, and those change chromatin structure and function in a way that changes the expression uh, or the expression profile of the, of the cell. Um, and what has always been, um, I would say, a challenge in, epi in epigenetics is understanding causality and understanding whether these modifications actually drive changes um, in, for example, chromatin structure and function and gene expression, Or are they actually a result of a change that is happening? 
So when I started going into this into epigenetics and um, from from a biochemistry biochemical perspective, I was really really trying to tease out these you know very high resolution mechanism. But what I realized is that we really do it in the wrong context. So we can reconstitute in a tube a nucleosome, even a mini chromosome and with histones and even a few effector proteins, but we can never really recapitulate the density um, of the nucleus. We cannot, we can never recapitulate the combination of factors that are existing at a given, at a given site. So what I was trying to do is I was trying to bring sort of the biochemical um, precision, but in a physiological context. And the way to do it was using these really marvelous protein engineering uh, tools called intines. And the reason why intines are amazing is because they are really small uh, fracture domain. And what they do is they bind in a very, very, very high affinity, picomolar affinity, and they self-excise. So what it, what it enables us is to bring to things that you know, are not necessarily supposed to come together and, and fuse them in a very, in, you know, generating a native polypeptide bond. Um, so what we, what we did is actually combine the, the native and the synthetic. So we expressed histones that are lacking the tail, uh, fused to one half of the intine, and the other half of the intine was fused to a synthetic tail that contained modifications on it. And by delivering it into cells, so basically one, one portion was expressing and incorporating into chromatin, and the other portion was delivered using a cell-penetrating peptide into the cell, forming a new synthetic histone, but now in the context of chromatin. So not in an isolated mononucleosome or in a tube, but in actual living cell. So now with these these really powerful um, engineering capabilities, we can ask questions about if we add a certain modification, what does it do to change um, chromatin? We actually even took it one step, I would say not maybe not further, but maybe sideways, where we used the system on, um, it, it was led by, by um, my colleague, uh, Glenn Nishak, but he was fusing these intines to that Cas9, and that allowed us to also to deliver these synthetic intine tails, this is a follow-up paper, um, to specific gene loci. So that was a really nice sort of a combination of uh, local specificity and site specificity. Yeah, that would have been my next question because, uh, yeah, the Cas9 was the follow-up story. Um, uh, yeah, what, what did you uh, change there and then what was the, the motivation behind that? So the motivation was exactly that. So, you know, we could detect changes on a global scale using our synthetic histones uh, in, in sort of the first delivery system. But I was, every time I was, um, um, you know, presenting the story, I would get the question, but how do you know where it goes? Now, we could control it to some degree. So we knew that using, because this reaction um, between the intines is um, uh, accessibility and concentration dependent. So we knew that if we put a little bit of the synthetic intine, we, would ca we capture mostly open chromatin. And only when we start delivering higher and higher concentration, we can start penetrating the, the heterochromatin. So we knew we have a little bit of control as to where, but it's definitely not gene specific. And so what we thought is, okay, what if instead of um, expressing an intine-infused histone, 
we would actually express a Cas9 fused um, to intine, deliver it to its, you know, using a specific guide to a specific locus, and then deliver the synthetic piece that will be hanging off the dead Cas9. Now, the great advantage is that you get really a delivery of a synthetic tail to a specific gene. The problem is you don't get the native histone back because now the histone okay. tail is really on Cas9. And Cas9 is a pretty big protein and it sort of stays there and right, and it changes local structure of chromatin. So I would say there are advantages in each um, method, but so they're complementary. But unfortunately, we the next level is to do both. Right to get both the local specificity and the histone native histone. But what do you do with all the other loci where the Cas9 doesn't go? I mean, they have like a truncated histone. Is it correct? Well, that well, the, the that Cas9 doesn't even go into it. The, the truncated histone doesn't coexist with the dead Cas9, so it's two okay. separate entities okay. completely. But what you are right is that. In many cases, when we have unreacted histone, we have truncated histone with an intine. We have done uh, excessive work um, to show that it doesn't change cellular function or chromatin, um, but um, but you're right that it could potentially prevent from a signal to, to occur a specific locus. So no. it does have this, these disadvantages. So then in a publication from 2019, you looked at histone Glycation, is that correctly glycation. pronounced? <laughs> glycation. Uh, so what is it and uh, what function does it have? So when I, actually when I transitioned to start my own lab, um, I was really, you know, leveraging the opportunity that I got a really amazing, you know, um, I would say support from Sloan Kettering to really pursue my interest my passion. There was no commitment. They said, okay, you wrote this proposal. You can do, we trust you. You can do whatever you want, uh, whatever your interest is. And one of the main reasons that interested me when I started my, my scientific journey, as I mentioned at the beginning, is really understanding how systems receive signal and um, respond to the environment in a, in a, in a more direct manner. And so one of the ideas was because histones are very, very long-lived proteins, could they be receiving or accumulating um, information from the environment, metabolic information, and basically responding um, by changing transcription? And um, it was kind of like a weird concept. People were, were what do you mean? And I, many times I had to sort of explain it. And until we really got started getting the, our beautiful data is that I was actually convinced myself that this is indeed a mechanism because it was really just a hypothesis at that point. And my hypothesis was that there are chemicals, reactive chemicals that exist in the microenvironment and in the cells. So they're either taken from the environment or generated by the cell. And they can react with macromolecules. Now, most proteins and um, um, are have short half-life, so they will be turned over, and they might not even accumulate it to uh, a greater degree, a great degree. But histones, and, and that's why I first wanted to start my work on neurons, where histones have half-life of years, um, because there's no proliferation, um, can accumulate these adducts, and then either accumulate a damage, which was my first hypothesis, so basically damage chromatin, or 
change um, local structures and affect transcription. And now I'm starting to lean more towards the second hypothesis, um, that it actually has a biological function. It's not just mere damage. And um, I started our work from sugars because metabolism in, in cancer, right, it's, it's very tightly linked to sugar metabolism. Um, cancer growth, accumulation of really um, metabolic byproducts that are um, more reactive due to anaerobic glycolysis. So it was a very natural place for me to start. And we started by looking at, at methylglyoxal, although we surveyed many, many um, sugars, and I can tell you many of them react and were following up on, on some of them. Um, but many of them react not just with histone, but also with other proteins. And because this reaction is, is non-enzymatically, so it's not regulated uh, by enzymes that use these sugars as cofactors, it's really only a function of accessibility, concentration, and time. Now, histones are highly accessible due to their nature. Um, time, they have a very long half-life. And concentration, these metabolic byproducts that are upregulated in cancer are now have high concentration to react. So that's sort of where it was, was our starting point. Um, and I don't know uh, if you want me to tell you specifically uh, what we found or do you have any, any other specific questions about it? Yes, so the next question would be that you have developed a probe to to test those or to investigate the, the um, histone glycation. So if you could go into this, this would be great. Sure. So since we found that these sugar adducts really change chromatin structure and function, um, and but they're small chemicals, it was really hard for us to um, develop um, antibodies. There are no good antibodies against these adducts. They rearrange, they form different types of adducts over time. Um, they accumulate on different amino acids. Um, so it was really hard to, to find a good, I would say, immuno tool to analyze them. We were lucky with our original anti-MGO that was sort of a pan MGO adducts uh, antibody, and it allows to survey all the proteins um, and even the, the, the DNA that undergoes um, these, these modifications. But it was not good enough for enrichment. And since in epigenetics, it's all about location, uh, just like real estate, we really wanted to tease out where these adducts are. Um, so we developed um, this AlkMGO probe that is it, it mimics MGO amazingly well. It just has an alkyne handle for click chemistry. And we show that we can click on a fluorophore, a biotin, and we can enrich it and we can track it, which is really great. Um, it had great utility. And in fact, we're now doing some of these um, whole genome um, localization to determine exactly where these MGO adducts are. But that kind of got, got us... Um, you know, excited about making these new tools. And we actually moved on uh, to make a ribose uh, probe because what we found in our in vitro, in our cell assays, is that ribose glycation can also accumulate. But ribose had even less tools than, than MGO for tracking. Um, yes, because it also feeds into the metabolic pathways and it, it rearranges um, to an adduct that you, can, you can't really trace. Uh, so we generated an azetoribose probe, and that was really the first time we or anyone could show that ribose glycation occurs and in a very specific manner um, accumulates on histones and also other critical 
um, effector proteins on chromatin, um, including remodelers, including PRC. Um, and, and now we're following up on, on some of these adducts that are that could really change the, the affinity, the docking, and the activity of, of these um, chromatin effectors um, on gene expression. So there is not, not only histone glyc glycation, I'm having still problems to pronounce this, but there is also um, even a more fancy word, citrullination. Yes. Um, and you also um, looked at the interplay between all those um, modifications. Um, so how do they influence each other and which factors play a role in this network? Yeah, so one of the things we found with glycation is that the first thing it does, it sort of changes chromatin in a uh, very biophysical manner. So it reacts with lysines and arginines and just changes the, the, the compaction state of the fiber by just competing off these electrostatic interactions with the DNA. Uh, so but does it compact, compact it or does it make oh, it more open? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So we found this biphasic model. So basically, <laughs> I know, I know, it can't be simple, right? So when it first reacts, it only caps the positive charge, similar to acetylation, and it causes fiber relaxation. But what happens with glycation is one of the rearrangements of glycation is cross-linking. In fact, these cross-linking is sort of why we get wrinkles. It's the glycation of our extracellular matrix that causes a, a, a decrease in dynamics. So it's the same with the chromatin fiber. It loses its dynamics and it actually becomes compacted. So basically a short exposure or a low concentration will cause decompaction. And then a longer exposure or high concentration will cause compaction. So that's, that's sort of what we found. But what we also found is that because these modifications happen on lysines and arginines, they actually can also compete with enzymatic modification. Because if you have glycation on your lysine um, 9, you cannot have methylation on it, right? And the same for K4 and the same for, for, um, for K27. So is the cross-linking reversible? It is not reversible. And in fact, it's, um, that's why it's called... Um, Uh, advanced glycation end product because it's a real end product. Um, the only way to, to get rid of it um, is really uh, by turning over the, the histones. And that's something we're really looking into, how do cells deal with it? Um, now, because glycation is prefer prefer preferentially happening on um, arginines, so that means it will first react with the arginine and then with the lysine, um, we were wondering, you know, we saw the arginine methylation going down when we competed with glycation. So we knew there is some competition there. Uh, but we were interested in looking at citrullination because citrullination is, is a funky modification. It's not really known what it's doing. There are only a couple of papers by the, I think it was Aridis and, and the Alice Labs, that they show that it causes decompaction because citrullination is really um, uh, just the emanation of, of the arginine. So it loses one positive charge. Uh, and gains an oxygen, so it makes it a little more negative and causing basically uh, fiber decompaction. Um, so we thought, okay, if the arginine becomes a citrulline, it, it probably will not react with the sugar. So we can show competition the other way around. And um, what we found was actually more surprising is that the, the, the citrullinase uh, or the deaminase, the PAD4 enzyme, is actually removing citrulline Uh, removing the glycation to add a citrulline, sorry. So basically, it's not just citrullinating naked arginines, 
but it is able to citrullinate modified arginines. So this type of rewriting activity um, is very, very rare and, and, and unique. And we show that it is, um, it is happening at the same time using um, very sort of label, so fancy labeling uh, methods. And the reason why I find this particularly interesting is because citrullination is also a dead-end modification. So there is no decitrullinase. So that means that if you have PAD4 taking a glycated um, histone and turning it into citrullinated histone, it's one, preventing it from undergoing any further glycation, but it also prevented from undergoing any further modification in general because citrullination is a dead end. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very interesting network um, uh, that has nothing to do with um, the other things, methylation, acetylation that we know. But let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, and I must admit, um, Histone H1 has suffered from not being highlighted very often in this podcast so far. I agree. <laughs> but, but you did some work purifying and characterizing Histone H1. Um, could you maybe briefly introduce Histone H1 and what it makes different from the other ones, from other core histones? Um, H1 is one of my favorite histones because naturally I'm, I'm drawn, as most people, to the underdogs of, of histones. It's the black sheep of the histone family. Uh, one, it's not part of the you know, core histone complex. It, is, um, it, is, um, it docks basically to the nucleosome forming this chromatosome. And the reason why I was very interested in it, it was very, it's very poorly studied still. Um, and mainly because it's very difficult to handle. It has very, very long unstructured tails, even longer than the core histones. Um, it tends to precipitate. Now we know that partially phase separate. Um, and, um, and when you try to purify it in vitro, it undergoes cleavage very quickly. So you end up with very truncated uh, forms of it. So you can't really study it. And the other reason why it's kind of interesting and problematic at the same time is that there are 11 H1 variants and they all exist at different times um, and, um, and conditions. And, but many of them also coexist. So for a long time, people said, okay, they ju they're just redundant. Uh, but you know, knowing biology, there's no just redundant. If there's redundancy, there is a reason for it. And um, what people started um, noticing is that mutations in specific H1 variants are actually very prevalent in cancer. So that was sort of our starting point. So the first thing we wanted to do is actually be able to biochemically and biophysically characterize these variants because no one has ever done that. Um, so using our protein engineering tools, we developed this method where we're able to purify all the H1 variants in a traceless manner, which is very important because if you put tags on the tails of the H1, you change the tails and the tails is where the action is. Um, in histone, usually you can put it at the C-terminus and you leave the N-terminal tail sort of clean. But with H1, both tails are important. So we use this dual um, tagging system, also using solubility tags. So the protein won't precipitate. I think we spend a year just figuring out, you know, how to purify them. So And why doesn't the, is the usual acid extraction not, does not work for histone H1? Uh, it just it just doesn't because what happens is whenever you try to uh, refold or further purify it, you, these tails just um, 
I don't know if they autoclave, but they undergo cleavage. So what you end up having is um, much, much, much shorter tails H1. And again, we think, and that's what the consensus is, that these tails are very important for the function of H1. So every other purification left us with truncated H1. And we tried many, many different ways, trust me. Um, <laughs> uh, that's the only way we can really stay with the intact and, you know, using high-resolution aspects okay. show that it is indeed the full H1 and, and it's, and it's um, unmodified and not contaminated with truncations. Um, and that was very exciting. When 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 I saw that, I was um, actually my first graduate student recently graduated, and she pioneered this work. And she showed the Slack message where she said, um, "Boss lady, I think we got it." And I <laughs> and she had to uh, mark in black what I wrote after that because I wrote, "Holy." <laughs> <laughs> um, so once she was able to purify one. She really um, plowed through it and purified all the somatic H1 variants and showed exactly how different they are in their affinity to nucleosomes, in their capacity to compact chromatin. And then after we had this toolbox, we started doing further experiments. And we were particularly interested in mutations that drive disease. Because now that we finally have this in vitro system, we can really pinpoint how these mutations change H1 function. Um, so we teamed up with um, Ari Melnick uh, from Well Cornell, who is, who's an expert in lymphoma, and they were studying these in, in mice, the uh, role of H1 in driving lymphoma in mice. And um, we took the patient uh, mutations and we made them in vitro, and we show exactly how they change. So some of them that are more in the globular domain, they will change the docking and the affinity of the H1 to the, to the nucleosome. Some that are further in the tail will change the capacity of the H1 to compact uh, the nucleosomes. So it's really, um, it really allowed us to, to dive deeper into understanding the mechanism. And they did make the same mutations, obviously, in mice um, and, and showing exactly the changes in, in the compartments, in the transition between compartments that we saw um, in vitro. And then in the same time, Arts Culture from Albert Einstein was working on, um, on looking at the, the role of, of H1 in, in this compartmentalization using a different uh, approach by creating knockouts, uh, multiple knockouts. So knocking out multiple variants uh, in the same cell. By the way, cells cannot tolerate if you delete more than three variants, they die. So they generated um, um, sort of not a complete knockout of all the H1s, but of uh, the, the main um, variants that exist. Uh, so you're only left, I think, with 20-ish percentage of the H1. And they show exactly how the loss of H1 changes the compartmentalization in, of the chromatin and, and also beautiful work. And we were able to help them also a little bit showing crosstalk with um, uh, PRC2, for example. So, so that, that means H1 is not, so the variants are not like tissue specific or, or anything like that? So what we think is that they're not just tissue specific, that they also have different functions in the cell. Um, They have different affinities and different uh, compaction um, capabilities. And the combination of all these allow sort of a dial of compaction. Because if you only had one H1 capable of doing um, compacting in one manner, right, it will be hard to get different regions compacted in different ways. Oh, so, so, so the different variants are responsible for different grades of compaction then? Yes, and okay. under different conditions, yes. Yeah. 
Okay. So that leads me to my next question. What are you working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Oof, wow. Um, <laughs> so you don't have to, to tell anything that's not published. So that's <laughs> Okay. I was going to say there are some really exciting things that um, are further back in the pipeline. And I can, I can give a, a small taste of it. Um, you know, epigenetic or, or um, changes um, in um, metabolism of cells can affect epigenetics in many, many ways. And, um, and it can affect their function. So now, you know, being at Sloan Kettering, we got really interested in understanding how, for example, T cells function. And because T cells are blood cells, they're highly um, um, exposed to changes in sugar levels right? More so than solid tissues. Uh, we're now looking at how these glycations are actually affecting T-cell function and um, chromatin architecture and everything that is associated with it. I'll stop at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that's one thing we're really interested in pr pursuing um, glycation. We're also looking at other um, non-enzymatic modifications. So that's another um, route we're still taking there some really funky ones that we're following up on. Um, one of them I, I hope will, will come out soon. Um, we're definitely following H1. Uh, in fact, I have a, a, a new postdoc in the lab that is very interested in actually the germline H1 and how different they are from the somatic and how these differences in, in, um, in, in H1 can actually dictate um, the transition between, some, you know, uh, during cellular uh, or organism development. So that's something that is really, really cool because these H1s sort of exist at a certain stage and then slowly are being replaced. And how is this replacement affecting uh, the, the differentiation um, and, um, and basically sort of dictates the cell fate? Um, and the last thing that we're very excited about that I think, I hope that will be the next big thing that will come out is looking at non-canonical histone ubiquitination. Um, because many people study the canonical ubiquitination, which is very important, you know, H2BK120, H2K119. Uh, but in fact, there are about 42 sites of ubiquitination on histones um, that are mostly uncharacterized. And we started um, a search looking at both of these sites by generating them semi-synthetically, but also by looking at new enzymes that could potentially work on um, in facilitating these ubiquitination. And we recently found a new enzyme that um, ubiquitates H3. And not just ubiquitates it, but actually this ubiquitination regulates canine methylation um, and drives colorectal cancer. So that's a, another big story we're working on that I'm very, very excited about. Uh, so not just non-canonical modifications, but also non-canonical sites. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. And we are, yeah, I'm excited to, to hear of that then in the future. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Um, if I ever reached a dead end. So definitely reached many dead ends. I can tell you uh, in my career, if, if, if you're a scientist, you, you, you definitely um, have. But... Um, I think the advantage of being a chemical biologist, and that's sort of how I try to also structure um, projects in my lab, is I try to always have some component that 
um, is descriptive or involves a method, something that there will never be a real dead end. So if we cannot take this beyond the observation or beyond the method, this will be still something that is interesting to the community. So definitely have reached dead ends, but with, I think we're always able to um, report or um, to use what we have accomplished sort of in the first phase of the project. So I, I try to make lemonade out of out of. So in the last uh, 35 minutes or so, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, I can say that it's been a very interesting scientific journey because I started as a biologist interested in, in neurobiology and I ended as a chemical biologist doing epigenetics. Uh, but the threat is definitely understanding protein structure and function, and how their, their structure and function communicates with the environment. And I would say my biggest contribution, especially as an independent uh, PI, is really starting to tease out how cells communicate with the environment on an epigenetic level. And um, I think this is a really beginning of a new field um, that we're now just scratching the surface of it. Um, actually, since I've started, there's been um, an increase, an exponential increase in papers looking at these non-enzymatic modifications. And I'm very happy to see that they're very diverse in structures and function and, and in effect. And, and I'm very excited to see where this field goes. Yeah, thank you, Chael, for being on the show and for your time. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.